Today on the podcast, we have a very special guest. But before we get there, we want to tell you about a brand new sponsor. I'm not going to tell you about it. Here's Pastor Kenneth Carpenter. The Movement Conference is designed to present a balanced apostolic church and apostolic ministries. We are living in a day of extremism. And if there has ever been a time in the history of the church that we remain balanced, it is today. The Movement Conference will be blessed with the dynamic anointed preaching of Brother Jimmy Tony, Brother David Poole, Brother Matthew Ball, Brother Sam Emery, Brother Aaron Bounds, Brother J.H. Osborne, and Brother Raymond Woodward. Make plans now to be a part of the very first The Movement. The conference will be held at the First Apostolic Church in Maryville, August 31st through September 2nd, and registration opens April the 1st. Guys, you do not want to miss that conference. It is going to be Awesome. Some of my favorite preachers are going to be there. The first 400 registrants is 75 per person. Groups of six plus is 50 per person. Make sure you get in on that good deal. And my next sponsor is one of my favorites of all time. Trauma Hogs Barbecue. This guy, this team, this company is the real deal. You can go to traumahogsbarbecue.com. You can see his products. You can order stuff online, seasonings, sauces, Anything you need to make that backyard barbecue the perfect get-together, let Trauma Hogs Barbecue help you out. Go to TraumaHogsBarbecue.com or you can find them on Instagram, you can find them on Facebook, or if you're in the local area, go by and see this guy. He's got a store that'll blow your mind. It's 6127 Highway 49 North in Brooklyn, Arkansas. If you can't make it to the store, like I said, go on the website and get some of his homemade sauce and homemade rubs. His sauce is to die for. Me and Brian just did a cook a couple of night or a couple of weeks ago for uh, a few people in our church. We did some ribs. We threw some uh, trauma hawk sauce on there. And I tell you what, if somehow some of that sauce landed on your forehead, your tongue would beat you to death trying to get that flavor. Guys, I'm telling you, trauma hawks barbecue is a real deal. Go check him out today. Our next sponsor we want to tell you about is of course. Anderson Heat and Air. Nathaniel Anderson is a good friend of the podcast, great friend of Brian and I's. He can help you out with a new install, a remodel, anything you need from A to Z. Call him today at 870-664-1967. Another friend of the podcast, another sponsor of the podcast is Sheila Texter, author of Life After the Mistake. Here is a author, an apostolic author that writes about mistakes for women for men, for life. Guys, you want to check this out, go to Amazon.com, search for Life After the Mistake, Sheila Texture. You'll want to get this while you still can. This is an awesome, awesome book. Please support those who support us. Another good friend is the TheDriftedDrum.com. This is Dr. April Drones. She's been with us from a, for a long time now. Such a great encourager. We love her. She's got a whole bunch of stuff on thedrifteddrum.com, everywhere from a book to a companion journal to apparel. If you want to do anything, including write a book or anything like that, she also can help publish. Guys, go to thedrifteddrum.com. Check out everything she's got from gifts and decor to events to books to apparel. And you can also put in pro promo code CRUCIAL2020. That's CRUCIAL2020. Get 20% off your entire purchase. Now guys, enjoy this crucial conversation. Hey guys, this is Brian and I'm Tony and you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast.
we're always grateful whenever someone is willing to take some time to have a crucial conversation with us. And of course, we're always on the lookout for people that have an interesting story and we think can, can bring uh, some clarity to some things or tell us something that's, that uh, sometimes we don't, we don't think about or, or we, we're not just um, uh, retaining our knowledge often. And, and one of those things is, is sometimes we kind of can, can get distracted from our mission to, to reach everyone everywhere with the gospel. And I was scrolling through Facebook on a on a forum that that I that I'm on, and in that forum, uh, a, Brother Jeff Reddy had posted in it and had said something about his calling to missions to uh, the Native people and the First Nation people of of North America, and it's it was a a group that, uh, as I said, sometimes you just don't don't think about it. Where we're at in Arkansas, there's there's really not very many. There's, I can't tell you where the nearest reservation is or anything, but I think it would be very interesting to see hear about that calling. But before we get there, uh, Brother Reddy, thank you so much for taking time to, to speak yes. with us uh, today and share your burden and, and some, some things about uh, this cultural group that you're called to. And I'm sure it even goes beyond just that. And so we're, we're curious, of course, first of all, we want to get to know you because we literally just met in, in this phone call. And so um, tell us a little bit about your background and, and where you're from and how you got started in this wonderful uh, apostolic truth. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me, guys. And uh, it's an honor to be with you today. And um, basically, I was not raised in an apostolic home. Um, I was adopted as a really small child. The family that adopted me were, is a great family. They're my mom and dad. They love me. They they love Jesus. They took me to church, but it was not within the context of uh, full truth. And so wasn't raised apostolic. And as a teenager, I got away from the church experience that I had with them and did what a lot of teenagers do and kind of went my own way. Uh, went downhill pretty quick and got a pretty severe drug addiction. By the time I was 20 years of age, I had about a $500 a day addiction to drugs. Mm. And that's when I came to the church, uh, Columbia, Mississippi, of course, 1988. So that gives everybody an idea how old I am. But um, mm -hmm. I came to the church, God delivered me in one service of addiction and, and filled me with the Holy Ghost. And really, I was on the, the fast track for the world. And I just turned around and kept going uh, full speed ahead. So within a year, I went to Bible college and uh, met my wife. We got married. She's fifth generation Pentecost on both sides of her family. And uh, I think that makes a good combination. I tell people I, I didn't have an apostolic heritage, so I married one. That's and, awesome. Uh, yes, yeah, sir. And then we, uh, we got involved in ministry right away and have served in many capacities throughout the past 32 years. Um, everything from outreach ministries to youth ministries taught a uh, campus ministry at the University of Texas in Austin for a year. I've uh, assisted, we've planted churches, pastored churches, so kind of got involved in many areas, but one thing in every one of those places that has been kind of at the forefront has been multicultural ministries. We've worked with many different cultures along the, along the way. Uh, for example, we started a church in the Kansas City area about 20 years ago, and immediately began praying about planting daughter works. And we were connected with a group of Samoans and planted a daughter work among their culture, worked with the Samoan people. And then after that, we worked on staff at a little bit larger church and worked exclusively with their multicultural ministries, people with the Haitians and Jamaicans and African immigrants and all different groups. So we kind of had an exposure to culture and uh, see kind of how uh, the gospel is presented in many different contexts. Uh, and then kind of what led us to where we are today, about seven years ago, we were asked to come to Flagstaff, Arizona to pastor a church that was there. Immediately began looking for the multicultural opportunities uh, in the area. Of course, that led us to the Native American people and we began reaching out, working with them. There were some in our church already uh, natives, but we we worked with them and then with their extended families and went from there. The Lord helped us to reach uh, 
we had, when we left about five years into it, so about two years ago, we had 65% uh, of our local church was native from nine different tribes. And um, we had three preaching points on three different native reservations. So we really got uh, submerged into native culture, so much so that my wife and I got involved with foster care while we were in Arizona. And uh, two years ago, next week, we adopted two Navajo children. Uh, so our children are 30 and 27 and now four and three. <laughs> so kind of starting all over. <laughs> little big of a bridge there you got bro that's right yeah we just uh raising our own grandkids they say but um you know adoption was part of my story as a child and and so it was in my heart and god put this all together and uh of course we love native culture and so much so that we we brought it into our family and so god is uh is really taking us full circle we felt to resign the church in flagstaff and i went to work for the last two years uh, with Multicultural Ministries as a promotions director, kind of traveling around promoting the overall ministry, 21 different cultural ministries within our umbrella, but never got away from that desire and uh, burden for the Native people. And so we applied earlier this or this past year and, and got approved at General Conference to be missionaries to the Native and First Nation people. First Nation is what they are called in Canada. Um, so uh, what we know as Native American here in the States, in Canada, they're, they're called First Nation uh, peoples. So you might hear that term as well. So yeah, where I, are you? That, that ahead, was Brian. a question that I was going to ask because, you know, of course, in the States, we, you know, refer to them as Native Americans. And uh, the first time I actually heard the term was uh, I was actually listening to a GQ interview uh, of a lady was interviewing Jordan Peterson. And uh, Jordan Peterson, he he's a collector of First Nation uh, cultural um, memorabilia, I guess. And, and so he, yeah. he he collects it in his home, has a has basically a museum in his home and something got brought up about it. And I actually had to Google what they were talking about. So um, thank you for giving us clarification on that. What, what were you saying, Tony? So where where you, have you been called to to go in Canada, bro? Well, so the way our missionary program works through Multicultural Ministries, uh, just real briefly, is we we deputize and raise a budget just like a global missionary, which is what I'm doing now. I'm in the process of deputation. Um, and then once that's complete, we go on a four-year assignment just like a global missionary. But where it's different from global is we're not sent to one specific place. Uh, local churches around North America send in application and maybe they're near a reservation or maybe they have a large native population in their community and they want some help to break into that culture group and to start either a daughter work or at least a, a ministry to the native people. So once that application is in line and approved, uh, I will come and spend three to six months with them doing two things. The main thing would be to reach into that culture, make some contacts, teach some Bible studies, see some people brought to the Lord. And then secondly, we'll work with a minister in that church, whether it's a single person or a couple. And uh, whoever the pastor feels will keep that ministry going or that daughter work going when I leave so that they can keep it going. So just a plug for Multicultural Ministries, uh, these have not all been native, but four missionaries over the last 12 years through this program to different cultures I've started 75 daughter works around North America. It's really a, a great program uh, for the local pastor. What it does is it basically gets you a minister, full-time minister on staff for three to six months that you have, uh, you don't have to pay. <laughs> so it's a blessing to have that because we're fully funded through our PIMs. And then of course we focus on that, on that cultural group. So to answer your question, brother Tony is we'll go anywhere in Canada that uh, church wants us to come. We've already been in contact with churches in Idaho and Canada and Alaska, of course, Arizona, where I, I lived. I've got several connections there as well. That's very, very unique. I, uh, my mother-in-law is involved with children's ministry. And when her husband passed away, um, me and my brother-in-law, we, we were asked to kind of travel with her, you know, just our father-in-law didn't want his, uh, 
his burden and his ministry to just die with him. And so we, we actually started traveling with him. And through that, we were able to travel to Canada a couple of different times. And this last time we went to Canada, we were with um, some people in Alberta. And the guy that we were with is a native there. And he pastors on a, uh, on a reserve. And he was telling me, you know, it is it's such a unique opportunity. Uh, however, ministering to, to the natives are, are much different. And they, the reception is completely different than your average American church. You know, the, the, the people that, you know, a lot of our listeners are used to being around and preaching to and being in church with. Have you noticed that as well, brother? Yes, definitely. Uh, in fact, I did have someone ask me, you know, with regard to our missionary program that they said they understand uh, missionaries to different cultures where there's a language barrier, but with most native Americans, uh, most of them understand or speak English. So just asking, why would that be something that is needed? And, you know, reality is culture is very different, even off the reserve or off the reservation um, in, in our major cities where there's a large pocket of native people, they might work in our, our jobs, go to our schools, shop in our same stores, but culturally they are very different and uh, they're not, they're not easy to reach. Uh, I had one pastor tell me one time that, you know, every Sunday is all nation Sunday at my church. And what he, what he was saying, and I agree is that everyone is welcome every Sunday, but you know, even though everybody's always welcome, the reality is everybody's not coming. And so we have to be intentional about going and finding them and, and, and building a connection with the, the culture. And so that's kind of what we're, we're going to be doing. Uh, anywhere that they need that that assistance. What do you think the biggest barrier be, between uh, natives is in your in your ministry? What do you think the biggest hurdle you'll have would be? Well, the, the biggest hurdle we've had over the last seven years, uh, even though we've had some success, uh, has been trust. Um, I like to word it this way. Native Americans have earned the right not to trust the Caucasian yeah. American, uh, just through 500 years of history. And so that is the biggest hurdle, but it is also easy to overcome with time and keeping your word and keeping your promises. Um, interesting thing was brought up recently, Brother Brock Chavis, who is our multicultural ministry director, but he's also half native because his father's Native American. He said that, uh, you know, any barrier I had before may not be quite as big now because my wife and I've actually adopted native children. And so when the native Americans we work with see that it's not just words and it's not just my ministry or, you know, me wanting to pat myself on the back and look what I'm doing, but what we've actually loved their people enough to, to bring it into our home and into our family that some of those walls will come down. But, you know, the thing Amen. is that those walls have been built over 500 years. Um, and I, we don't have enough time to go into the history, but a lot of people may know some of it. But most likely you don't know all of it because uh, what we were taught in public school and what you find out on the reservation are two completely different stories. And uh, but, but the brief history is uh, for 500 years, the Native people have been lied to and treaties have been broken. Many of these were done in the name of Christianity. Uh, and it was a long time ago. I'm not taking responsibility for something that people did 300 years ago. Uh, however, I will say this, I have known people to say, well, Native Americans just need to get over it. And, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to say, but it's really not helping anybody <laughs> to have that approach. So kind of the way I like to look at it is this, um, anything you build, if the foundation is faulty, it's not gonna last. So right. you can't take a cracked foundation and build a new house and expect it to be there for forever. So I think a lot of times we try to do ministry to other cultures or even sometimes within our own culture. Uh, and we build on a foundation that might have some faults or some flaws or some cracks or some, some uh, areas that need attention. So if we can go back to the foundation and say, yeah, you know what, these things did happen and it was terrible. And, you know, even though I didn't do it and I'm not taking responsibility for it and I'm not going to lose sleep or be guilty of it, 
I am aware of it and I do want to have empathy and I do want to hear your story. Uh, I think if you can listen, then you can earn the right to speak. I think that's a, that should be something we all do. It, it seems, and I know I'm, I'm going on several subjects here, but it all kind of comes into play. It seems that many people don't listen to hear. They listen to form a response. Um, you know, in conversation, when other people are talking, I find myself thinking about what I'm going to say next instead of really processing what they're saying. And I learned uh, over the last seven years in native ministry, how to really listen to actually hear. They taught me that because it is a, uh, a trait that they're better at than, than I am. Absolutely. I, another question I want to ask real quick is I, we were in another part of Canada as well a few years ago uh, in the Manitoba district. And the pastor, just like you, you were saying, uh, has a very unique situation there because every single weekend there is also All Nation Sunday. He's got, I think it was close to 40 some odd flags that's in the back of his church hanging up. And I asked him, I said, what do these flags represent? And he said, for each flag that's up there is a nationality that we currently have in our church. And I thought that was very, very unique. And um, I, I would I would begin to talk to him about the differences in, in ministering there because uh, he's from the Philippines. And I began to ask him about, you know, kind of the things that he, you know, that he sees and the struggles he he deals with, with so many different nationalities, whether it be connection or anything. And his response to me was there seems to be no hope that these people see uh, because of like you said, the history and everything that they've went through. Um, and, you know, the biggest battle that he faces is showing and giving hope to these people. And he was saying that their suicide rates are so high with even children. I, I don't remember the exact statistic he was giving me, but he was telling me this, that, that the suicide rate of the age of 12 was just astronomical. I could not believe it. That male children by the age of 12 sees that there's no hope in their life and they don't see any value in their adulthood and they would just rather end their life right then. And, you know, I, I, I want to thank you so much, uh, Brother Reddy, for being willing to go into these situations and, you know, try to give hope and peace to these people that it seems like, you know, they're living in such a, uh, a broken and hopeless situation that we, we, Brian, we could use more men and women like Brother Reddy that's willing to go at the helm to these situations and, and bro we brian and i man we 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 are we support what you're doing and we can't thank you enough for all the things that you're doing well thank you for that i actually probably know that filipino pastor in canada you're talking about <laughs> i've actually preached at a couple of filipino conferences in canada uh, with my multicultural ministry role and, and know some of the pastors up there but you know he's right out of 47 nationalities that he's reaching probably one of the toughest would be the first nation or the native American people. Um, and it is a, it is a place of, of no hope, hopelessness um, that was brought on through many years. And of course passed down from generation to generation. I think that's one of the worst things any culture can do is to tell their children and their grandchildren, just all the negative stories instead of telling them some of the positive things. And I think we all are guilty of that at some level. Um, but because of some of the, uh, things that they suffered um, throughout history and things like being taken from their home, forcibly put into government schools, names changed, made it illegal for them to speak their native language. Um, all of these things, you know, a, a, a common term back a hundred years ago was, you know, kill the Indian, save the man. And their point was, you know, ch change him into a, a Caucasian. That's what the church was trying to do. And they were trying to not just bring Jesus to their culture, but they were trying to change them to a Christian Christian culture or what they presumed to be a Christian culture, which was really just a Western, like a European culture. And so through all of that, you know, the post-traumatic stress is, is higher than, than most. The, the poverty, the depression, like you said, suicide is five times the national average. Alcoholism for young men between 18 and 30 is 70% on the reservation. Uh, all of these things are, 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 are terribly high. Diabetes and heart disease is 
higher than any other culture in America um, because of just the conditions that they live in, the poverty and things. But the uh, the key, like you said, is is hope. I mean, if you look at it as a as a complete culture, how do you minister to any other cultural group? We'll just say anybody. Uh, every culture is different. Every culture requires a different approach or maybe a little different um, tactic. But sometimes I think we make this too difficult. You know, yes, every culture is different. And yes, I could tell you what to do and what not to do with Filipino or Korean or, or native. But if you bring it on down to the next level, every individual is very much the same. And what I mean by that is, yeah, their culture is different, but people on an individual level want to know that you care about them. They want to know that you love them and that you're there for them. And if you can do that, if you can show that to an individual, then it doesn't matter what their culture is. You can you can win them to you and then earn the right to speak into their life. My, my pastor, we're out of Kansas City, Missouri, and Brother Gleason's my pastor. Of course, most everybody knows that he wrote a book called Follow the Lead on Discipleship. And I kind of laugh because I read the book and I'm like, well, he's been preaching that for 15 years before he ever wrote the book. You know, we've, <laughs> we've heard it and, and been living it. But really, it's there's a lot of truth in there in, in that, you know, you earn the right to speak into somebody's life by being there, by spending the time with them. Uh, so. Uh, Brother Gleason had a phrase in that in the book. He used to say all the time, slow down and win the world. And what he means is sometimes we get in too big a hurry to get everybody into the altar when we really need to slow down, win them to ourselves, earn their trust, and then from that, introduce them to Jesus. And that's kind of the approach we're going to take. As far as a personal example of what you're talking about with the suicide rate, when we were in Flagstaff, like I said, we pastored there for five years. Our local church never grew to more than 75. So it wasn't a very large church. And we had in a five-year time that we were there, people that were related to our church members. So none of our actual members, but their brothers, their mothers, their aunts, uncles, and cousins, very close relations. We had nine suicides. We had nine drug-related deaths, and we had eight alcohol-related deaths in five years. Wow. And that just seems like a lot more than what I would consider average uh, for that time frame for that size of a church. Mm. Our that youngest suicide, insane. our youngest suicide was a first cousin of our one of our, our. Actually, he was our children's pastor. His first cousin committed suicide at nine years old, and he got to the point, like you said, of no hope at nine years old. Which I don't even, I can't even process how that's possible, but. But that's the real world that we're talking about. And and so I've adopted a phrase. I know I'm doing all the talking. I apologize. but No, man, this, this is great. Uh, I've adopted this. I didn't say this originally, but I've said it for so many years. I've just kind of owned it. I can't even remember who said it originally. But it, it basically, it says, you know, the gospel is good news, but it's only good news if it gets there in time. Mm. And so that's kind of what we feel that uh, is our responsibility to try to get the good news to to the people who have taken the posture of no hope. You know, we could have the political conversation as to why they feel that way or whose fault is it and did they bring it on themselves or should we still be blaming the government for something that happened 300 years ago? We, we can have all those discussions, but at the end of the day, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. So we got to get past all of that. And, and introduce them to Jesus because that's where their hope's going to come from. Amen. So, you know, whenever you were talking about in, in Kansas City, um, you were dealing with Samoans, you've dealt with many different cultural groups that we've talked about. To our listeners out there, um, the reality is, is that we are a nation full of immigrants. These people or in our communities, whether it's Jonesville, Arkansas, where we're at, or it's in Kansas City, or if it's in Arizona, they're out there. Should our listeners be intimidated by a culture they're not familiar with? I would say no, uh, definitely not intimidated. Um, you know, just realize that that most of people are, are, are more comfortable with people from their own culture, 
just like we are probably more comfortable with people from our own culture. So uh, the reason I bring that up is, yes, everybody's welcome. And and the sign says we're churches at 10 and the website says churches at 10. But but most people aren't going to come without a personal invitation. And most people aren't going to respond to a personal invitation without a personal relationship. And so these things take time to build. Um, speaking of, of course, Native is a little different because they're American. They've been here longer than the rest of us. But speaking of uh, immigrants who come here from other places, uh, a staggering statistic I, I studied a few years ago was when foreign students or international students come to the United States for college, they'll spend four or five years on a college campus and 98% of them will never step foot in an American home during that time that they're here. So, you know, one of the greatest opportunities we have to reach the world would be to reach the international student who may go home after their schooling and then can reach their family and their extended family and their friends a lot easier and more effectively than a, an American missionary would be able to reach their family and friends and culture. And so I think we're missing an opportunity, you know, for them to spend five years in, in my, my city and never get invited to an American home. Uh, how hard would it be to make connections with some international students and say, hey, I want to know about some of the things your culture does. I want to know about some of your traditions. So here's how we're going to do it. Come to my home for Thanksgiving because that's one of our cultural traditions. That's one of the times of year that we as, a, as Americans look to as a tradition. I'll tell you all about Thanksgiving and then you tell me all about what you do, where you're from, and we'll enjoy some good food together. Um, you know, and it would be an opportunity to make connections with people. Uh, and the other thing about international students is, uh, or anyone coming, whether it's an international student, refugee, or just an immigrant, usually the first, uh, I'm just talking about church for now, usually the first church that makes an impression or an impact or some type of a contribution to that immigrant is the church they connect to. So how great would it be for uh, some of our churches, this might not be everybody's burden, but how great would it be for some of our churches to connect with refugee resettlement uh, corporations who, who get tax dollars and funding to resettle refugees. So their job is to bring these people over, get them into an apartment, get it funded for six months. And this immigrant has six months, this refugee has six months to get a job, get stable, and start paying their own bills because the government only gives them a set number of, of months. How great would it be to connect with some of those corporate companies and offer additional aid and additional services? Because just, just because the charity offers the housing and the transportation to the housing and maybe basic needs, they, they may not provide a coffee maker or they may not help them fill out job applications or they may not you know help them pass a driver's test and there's all kinds of ways the church can help people uh, make a connection i know we're we're kind of off the native american thing but here's one other thing i heard one time and i thought this was the greatest idea uh, a church that i know of has some property and they they basically tilled the property and sectioned it off into small sections and they've allowed 20, I think it was, they had 20 sections, and they've connected through a refugee resettlement company, and what they do is many of these families that come over, the, the husband will get a job right away, but the wife and their culture and then their country is used to growing their own food, vegetables, things of that nature. It's part of how they survive, uh, so this, this particular ministry allowed them to use that land to grow their vegetables, so they're coming on the property on your campus every day, working their ground. They're coming into your facility to get water and use a the restroom. They're making connections with your staff. Uh, and then you hook them up with the farmer's market, anything they don't need to eat for themselves. They sell at the farmer's market for a profit. It's really a great way to connect with people. And I, I, you know, I know that doesn't sound spiritual, but really uh, finding ways to connect with people is spiritual. Amen. So one more thing about the, our, our travels that I just, I enjoy talking to you about this because you're living was just glimpses of things that I got to see. Um, 
whenever uh, we were in the airport going through customs, uh, we had begin. We were actually with brother and sister Cannon, uh, the Sunday school director for the United Pentecostal Church International. Uh, we were with them, but our flights weren't together. But we were incredibly delayed because uh, customs had held us up. Uh, we had uh, all of all these props and and toys and you know just different things for for. Uh, the the kids revivals that we were going to be doing for the next two weeks while we were up there, and when we were detained by the by the uh, customs, they begin to tell us, you know, we don't quite believe that you're here for these specific reasons because nobody comes to Canada to give our kids, uh, you know, church or they this is this is nothing more than you babysitting them. Uh, we we need to understand that you're coming here for a profit we need your visa and all this stuff. And, you know, and that just made me understand that, you know, Canada as, as a whole may have the mindset of, you know, it could be a lost hope. Why try? Um, I, I don't, I don't understand that kind of mindset that they may have that for um, what, what can you do uh, brother ready to uh, change the mindset of that culture? When you're talking about with just with native people or, or oh no I'm talking about with with yeah basically with native people like uh, you know the, like I said the suicide rates are so high and I know you said you got to build a connection and trust with them but what can what can you do to to change the the broken hearts and just the hardness of um, their life that they went through you know because whenever somebody like you said a lot of times they're going through the 300 years of history that they've uh, been done wrong. A right. relationship isn't going to be able to be built overnight with that. Uh, what are some key factors? Exactly. What are some key factors that even we in the States could do to build relationships with these people? You know, because our pastor says something that I genuinely love. He says, every church should look like your city. If your city's got a third Hispanic and uh, a third African-American and a third white caucasian you should have a third a third and a third in your church right you know so what right. can we do to change the mindset of these people other you know how can we begin to build that relationship with them you know uh you know just just so we can get to be brothers and sisters in christ and, and invite them to have a relationship with god sure well that's a great question i, I think that one thing that i want to do better at i think i'm still learning on the learning curve for sure, but um, is going into a situation, a friendship, relationship, many times as um, the church, we feel like we're going into a situation as the one with all the answers or in any uh, discussion, we've got to take the lead. We got to, we got to be in charge. And I think that is easily picked up on by other people that, you know, just because we feel like we have something to offer doesn't mean they don't have something to offer. And so I don't always have to be the leader. I can, all, I can come in as the learner. I can come in and say, look, you know, um, we're here to talk about Jesus, but before we can get to that point, tell me a little bit about, your religious experience. Tell me a little bit about your background and and anything that they do or believe that doesn't go against the word of God. I can affirm that. I can say, you know, that's that's great. That's similar to, to what we do. Native Americans talk about uh, the great spirit. Well, you know, that's a one God concept. So I can I can applaud that and we can have that discussion. You know, um, they 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 talk about other other things that I can't affirm, and I certainly wouldn't, but uh, I think that coming in as a learner, as a listener, versus always having to be the one in charge. Um, and then the other thing, too, this is not just Native culture, this is any culture. Uh, don't don't assume that just because they're coming from a different cultural background that they don't have uh, an experience equal or even sometimes superior to my experience. For example, I've ministered in several African immigrant churches 
people from all over Africa who now live in North America. And a lot of times they're getting in church here and it's just like anybody else. They need to be taught. But other times they come to the states already uh, a part of the apostolic church. And so I, I get I get kind of tickled sometimes because I, I hear some of our preachers want to preach to an African immigrant con congregation who came to the states already apostolic and they want to preach to them about miracles. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe some of those African immigrants should be talking about miracles and maybe we should be listening and taking notes because I would venture to say they may have experienced some things that I've never seen. Uh, yeah, they may have experienced some provision that, you know, when I get a headache, I take a Tylenol. And when I get hungry, I go to the refrigerator or the supermarket. Well, that's not the case everywhere you go. So maybe I can learn something from them. And, and I think that with Native Americans, that, that's our approach It's you know, we're going to sit down together equals and you, you teach me and, and then I'll teach you. And, you know, we'll see where we intersect and where we disagree. And, uh, and go from there. I think that taking a posture of uh, the servant more than the leader is, is key in building relationships. So there's a lot of history between our culture and their culture when it comes to natives, but there's also a lot of history amongst themselves. So you mentioned you have multiple, you had multiple tribes in your church is there conflict when people come in the church with people from another tribe or is there uh, a unity in that we are a cultural group? When they get the Holy ghost, there's no conflict <laughs> because the church has a culture all its own. And, uh, but there is conflict among the different tribes, even the ones we worked with. Um, we were blessed because we were in a college town, university town. And so, there were a lot of people from a lot of tribes there. Most of our uh, Native American churches in North America, I say most, I, I, didn't, I haven't been to all of them, so I could be wrong, but the ones I'm familiar with are mostly one tribe and the church is near or on a reservation. And that's the people group that they're reaching. Not very many cities have opportunity to reach nine or 10 different tribes in one, in one community. Um, but yes, there, there, there are some differences or some differences of opinion, but it's not as bad as even maybe 50 years ago it would have been. Uh, you know, Native people are no different than anybody else. They've, they've come off the reservation and they intermarry and it's no, uh, no big deal to find somebody that might be half Navajo, but then their other parent was Mojave and Apache, you know, so there are two or three tribes represented and traditionally those three tribes wouldn't have gotten along. And then all of a sudden, you know, our, our youth pastor at the time, he was uh, Apache and his wife was half Navajo and half Mojave. And so uh, they all came to the wedding. So I think, it, I think they've gotten past a lot of that, but yeah, there are some differences and, and uh, there's cultural pride and things like that, that, that everybody else experiences. Um, you know, we, we have to help them realize that, you know, it's not just our responsibility to reach out to everybody. Uh, if you want to cut this out of the podcast, you can, but I'll go ahead and say it. And I, I've often said that, you know, why is it the, the white American church or the Caucasian American church's responsibility to reach every culture? And if we don't, then somehow we're not doing our job or we're looked upon as bigot or racist. But every other culture can reach a monocultural people and never be questioned. Why, in other words, why is it not the Hispanic church's responsibility to reach white people or the African-American church's responsibility to reach Hispanics? You know, I think the key is it is our responsibility as a church to reach for everybody. And so uh, that's the same thing I'm going to do with natives. You know, it's like, yeah, we're in this part of the country and probably 80% of who we'll deal with might be from this one tribe, but there's going to be other people from other tribes and, and they're going to be welcome. Um, for us, it wasn't that difficult to accomplish because um, it kind of happened organically. And so then when new people would come, they would see somebody in that group from their tribe and feel like that they were welcome there. So you've meant you in passing, you mentioned it before with, with the adoption of your, your, your youngest that are 
Uh, did you say Navajo? Yes. Uh, so whenever the natives see that, is that an instant connection of, hey, he cares about us enough that he's welcomed our own into his home and is raising them as his own? Or is it seen, and I'm sure everybody's different, is it seen as there's another white man who's trying to whiten our people? Yeah, well, in the church, almost everybody sees it as uh, the, the positive. You know, outside the church, there's probably going to be mixed reviews. Um, for but the, the the native people understand the system probably better than the Caucasian people do. In that, there's a law. It's called ICWA, which stands for Indian Child Welfare Act. And what ICWA says is, in a nutshell, uh, Caucasian people will rarely ever have the opportunity to adopt native children. The way the law reads is if someone from that extended family is available, they get first shot. If someone from that tribe is available, they get next shot. If someone from any tribe anywhere in, in the United States steps in and is, and is qualified, they get first shot before us uh, because of taking them out of the culture, raising them as Caucasian, uh, they don't want that. So it's very, very difficult to adopt native children in the first place. And, and I could give you all the details on how that happened and we'd be here all night. But, but let me just say that since we have passed all of that and we have gotten to the stage where we are and the tribe signed off on it and everybody's happy, when natives see that, they know that we've been through that process uh, and they know more about, right. They know more about what we had to go through than most people will know because they understand that that law is written that way for them. So yeah, so, they receive us pretty well. Uh, again, we've talked about it before. So whenever you're approaching someone, uh, and uh, they, do they already know uh, basically what you, I assume they already know what you're doing. You're not inviting them over to your house and all of a sudden, Hey, are you interested in the Bible study? And, and and the reason why I'm asking this is because do they just see Christianity as just white man's religion? I know we've, we've mentioned it before. And, and also, uh, since we've mentioned that before, how is it that you bridge uh, some of the cultural differences between an apostolic culture and a native culture? Because they have traditional dress, but we also have traditional dress. How do, we, how do you marry the two? Yes. Well, you know, a lot of Native people do look at Christianity as a white man's religion, and that's as derogatory as it can be, because in that terminology, they mean it the way it sounds. You know, they, mm -hmm. uh, they're they mad about what's happened through the years, and, and again, rightfully so. 90% um, of the Native population of 150 years ago was completely wiped out, either through disease or fighting amongst themselves or at the hands of uh, the Caucasian. Yeah, so that's a pretty big number. And uh, and so they, and unfortunately less than, uh, the, the most recent statistic I'm finding is less than 5% claim to be Christian of any kind, any denomination because of it. They feel like it's a white man's religion. So what we have done, of course, as an appointed missionary, I'm just now deputizing, so I haven't even been on my first assignment, um, but we did pastor in the native area for five years, so I'll talk about that experience. What worked for us was we had uh, some natives, we were winning into our local community, in our church, and when I say these things happen organically, what I mean by that is I had this elaborate plan that we were going to start a church on the Navajo reservation, and once it was sustainable, we were going to go to the Apache reservation and start there and then and do all these things. And sometimes I think we're making our plans and God sitting up in heaven with his arms folded with a smile on his face, like you done yet, you know, because once you get done planning, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do is kind of the way I see it. And because nothing happened the way I had it planned. Basically what happened for us, somebody in my local church would say, would you go pray for my family member? And I would say, yeah, are they in the hospital? And they'd say, no, they're two and a half hours out on the reservation. Uh, so I, I went in this one particular case, I went two and a half hours to pray for his grandmother. I got there, there were 24 people there wanting a Bible study. And I asked them how that happened. And they said, we decided 
if a well they said Bilagana, which is a derogatory term for white boy but you know that I didn't get offended that was the word that he knew you know what I mean so we got to get past all that offense if you're going to be cross-cultural and so I he basically I wouldn't even said, know what it is to be offended. Yeah, yeah I, I had learned it, but anyway. Yeah. He basically said, if a white man's going to come all this way to pray for one of our family members, then you've never even met her. We ought to at least give you the time to, to hear what you have to say. And so they were very open to what I had to say. And we, of course, they had uh, some Christianity in their background. So um, it wasn't like a, a major hurdle over the you know their uh, spiritualism and traditions and things like that but uh, it developed into a bible study we started going back monthly and it developed into a preaching point then another situation wanted me to go and pray for somebody by the time i got there there was 42 people there Uh, the largest deal like that was um i I was going to to baptize a lady's uh uncle he's in the hospital young lady in our church. She wanted me to go and baptize him. And I didn't get there in time. It's kind of a long story, but I'll just hit the highlights. He passed away two hours before I could get to where he was. And uh, I went on to the hospital to be there with them. The elder gentleman's sister was there and she invited me to come and speak at the funeral planning. She said I was the only preacher that came to see him in the hospital and I'd never even met him. And I drove four hours to go. Uh, only because of a connection with her niece. And so I went to the funeral. I never heard of a funeral planning. I, you know, in my culture, two people go to the funeral director and you plan the service. And so I didn't know what she meant, but I drove two and a half hours one way to a funeral planning. Turns out there was 80 people there. All of them were Apache, all of his family, his extended family, his friends, his coworkers. They planned a three-day event. It's, it's kind of an elaborate celebration, but she had me speak for 10 minutes. And basically I just said, you know, if your your relatives, he wanted to be baptized. He saw his need for it. If he was here tonight, he'd tell everybody here, get baptized in Jesus name and don't wait. And I shut it down and turned it back to him. And afterwards we had a meal, nine people came up and said, I've never heard of baptism in Jesus name. And so we had a Bible study, but, but what I realized later, because in the moment you don't always catch all the details. What, what I realized later was I'm speaking to 80 people. I only knew two people there. And besides me and those two, none of them had the Holy Ghost or been baptized in Jesus name. And, you know, it it was like I was invited in to a very personal experience, funerals, weddings, things like that. uh, All because I cared enough about somebody to drive a little bit out of my way to pray for them or whatever. So I think that that works with any culture. It even works among your own culture. You know, if somebody's sick and, and I say praying on Facebook, am I really praying or am I willing to hop in the car and drive 20, 30 minutes out of the way to, to, to check on them or take them a bowl of soup or, you know, whatever I need can do. I think it goes a long way to building trust and earning the right to, to speak into their life. Right, and that gives us a lot to think about, man. You there, Brian? Yeah. Yes, I, I keep on getting a work call, so hopefully we didn't oh, I got you. lose any connection there. <laughs> no, no, we had it the whole time. So, uh, good. Whenever you're you're ministering to these to these natives, um, is it intimidating, or is it just like second nature because you can preach the most? simple things like, you know, Jesus name baptism and it's a new revelation to them. You know, that's something very easy that, that ministers can do is preach Acts 238. Or is that a little bit more intimidating? It's not really intimidating. Um, but I would rec or not recommend, but I would mention that, you know, we have to be careful not to stereotype. Uh, for example, with, with native Americans, there's 574 recognized tribes. Um, 330 different reservations and even though they may share some similarities they have a lot of differences too Um, for for example this is just one the easy example probably the poorest tribe I'm aware of is in South Dakota and they receive are they not receive but they live on less than two thousand dollars a year per capita 
Um, that's not very much money. I don't know that I can make it on $2,000 a month right now, but, but they're making it on 2000 a year. There's another tribe that has a very small adult population, but if you are registered as in that tribe and you're over 18, they share the revenue of their casino. And last uh, report was each adult member of the tribe over 18 receives a check every month of $81,000. And so that's two extremes, but that's just to show you that, you know, just because they're native doesn't mean they're all poor. It doesn't mean they're all um, ignorant of the word of God. It doesn't mean that they're all uh, alcoholics or, you know, right. Um, but for the most part, when you're talking to people who are not familiar with the apostolic message, I think that, yeah, it is easier to preach. Um, and, you know, we don't have to have four and five syllable words to impress people. Um, it's interesting to me, if you look in the Greek, Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount and two thirds of, of the words on the, in the Sermon on the Mount were one syllable words. And so I think we could learn from that. And, you know, sometimes I think- absolutely. It, in our culture, and I'm talking about apostolic culture now, I'm not talking about any one race or, or ethnicity. In our culture, we we want to be wowed and we want to hear something we've never heard before. But um, when you're talking about building on a foundation that where nobody else is, has gone, like Paul said in Acts, he said, I, you know, I, I refuse to build on another man's foundation. If you go to an unchurched people group, doesn't matter who they are, you know, the the simplicity of the gospel still works. Amen. I came so not to you with the excellency of man's speech, but in the spirit of God and power. You know, sometimes right. it is just because it's. I've determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Right, and Paul was very educated, but he, he, uh, I think he was more comfortable in that setting. <laughs> yeah, so which is crazy because when you read his writings, you, it's difficult sometimes to understand what he's even talking about right so if somebody wanted to reach out to you and help you uh accomplish reaching by becoming a partner in missions how can they do that well they can uh can email me directly um or connect to me on facebook and go through messenger whatever's easiest but basically we don't even have to have them fill out the form anymore everything i can do digitally so all I need is, uh, you know, obviously if it's a church, I need the name of the, whoever that the, the pledge is going to be in, whether it's the individual name or the church name. Um, then I need a address, phone, email, and then dollar amount. I will say that if, uh, if somebody's listening and they're a member of a UPC church, uh, I always recommend that they go through their pastor, uh, yeah. at least let them know. And then if they want to do it as an individual, we certainly take individual pledges. Uh, but the pastor may want to do something collectively and do it all together. So um, that would be my first recommendation. But yeah, they could just get me uh, on on uh, social media or I'll give you my email address, name, address, phone, email, and dollar amount are the six or five or six things that I need. My email address is it's my name. It's Jeff B as in boy ready i know that sounds funny jeff be ready but that is my initial <laughs> <laughs> so it's j-e-f-f-b-r-e-a-d-y at sbcglobal.net jeff be ready at sbcglobal.net brian we have come to the end of an era in the united pentecostal church international whenever brother ready just told us you don't have to have those yellow forms that those missionaries used to wave at our pulpits Mm. We ain't got to have those no more. Well, as long as we still have peanut brittle, we're still UPC. <laughs> That's right. Oh, man. Brother Reddy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this afternoon. Um, bro, we can obviously hear your burden and your voice and in your stories. Um, bro, we pray nothing but blessings for you and your wife's ministry. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast to share that with all of our listeners. Well, guys, thank you so much for having me today. And if anybody wants to reach out or find out more about uh, our missionary program, whether it be to Native Americans or any of our other cultural groups, uh, feel free to reach out to me and I'll help any way that I can. Brian, that's a very unique uh, uh, missionary 
to go reach people that are even in the United States. You know, we kind of take it for granted uh, all the things that we have and, you know, how we live. And we just we just miss everything that's around us. You know, that's uh, that's a very unique missionary. And especially, as he said, of all groups of people, a group of people that have been here longer than most of us have our cultures have ever been here and and one that in this the quote unquote name of Christianity was done wrong and, and of course we know that true Christians would have never have done the things that they had done these right. people right. even if they meant well they were highly misguided and in, in converting people to Christianity at point of a sword or at the end of a gun and um of course this so this is a very sensitive uh, topic that flares up a lot of emotions in people, but it's a group of people we're still called to reach. And there's some hurdles that had to be moved, moved out of the way. And, and I encourage our listeners out there if, if possible, and with pastor pastoral approval to, to invest in this ministry, to reach a, a group of people that are our neighbors. I have said just real quickly, I have said several times that, you know, I feel like America is still the greatest nation in the world, and I believe the reason for that is we have uh, preached the gospel and brought Jesus to the four corners of America and then uh, didn't stop there, went all around the world, done a great job with with uh, global missions, and are still doing a wonderful job with global missions. But having taken it everywhere, uh, it seems like the people who were here first have been forgotten or neglected. And, you know, I know I'm supposed to feel that way because that's my that's my calling. But uh, I think that that there is some truth to that. There are people here yes. who've been here the longest and uh, we've we've gone all around the world for others to hear it and hadn't even gone gone to them. So anyway, that's what we're trying to do. And we appreciate everyone's prayer and support. We salute Brian, you. Absolutely. Go ahead, Tyler. Absolutely. I was going to say, man, this has been such a great episode. It's really got me to thinking, you know, to be more aware of my surroundings and who I'm, I, who I'm with, you know, uh, we're in a college town as well, Brian. And we do have a lot of people that come check out our church, you know, every now and then that we've never seen and may never see again. I want to make it a priority of myself to go say hi to those people and try to try to see what they've got going on. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, I mean, ASU is a huge hub for um, people from everywhere in the world. And, you know, we struggle getting missionaries to Saudi Arabia. You can't, you can't hardly get in some countries. Uh, who better to send back than a national to those countries that have been exposed to the truth? Because, as Brother Reddy said, we invited somebody to Thanksgiving. And, yeah. and, and, and even to... Again, uh, there, there's I can't think of any tribes that's in our area, but uh, it would be interesting to have that crucial conversation with an individual about what they've gone through and not do all the talking. But as Brother Ravy said, just listen and build trust with someone. I love it. Thank you, Brother Ravy, for taking the time to share your burden and your heart with us and with all of our listeners and uh, giving us an opportunity to uh, pray for you and invest in your ministry so that as you, you travel and uh, reach a, a group of people that is certainly, I w I'm shocked at the, 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 the story about the nine-year-old that, that like you said, how, how does a nine-year-old get to the place where they don't think they have hope when they have only lived the smallest portion of their life. And when you're that age, you really don't even remember most of your, your your memories before that i mean you only right. start really remembering things from the age of five so you only have four years of experience to draw from and in that four years you're that hopeless and that it, it's a it's shocking it's staggering and it should be a wake-up call to all of us that know truth that these people are out there and we can pretend they're not out there we can ignore that they're out there but it doesn't change the fact that they are out there. Amen. Amen. And by the way, when Brian just said ASU, we're not talking about Arizona State. We're Arkansas State over here. <laughs> right. 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 I hear you. Right. I got you. <laughs> we're not different. as big as Arizona State, but hey, we're just as cool. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
Oh, man. Guys, thank you for tuning in to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. Hey guys, this is Brian and I'm Tony and you're listening to the Crucial Conversation podcast.